On September the 10th in 1946, Mother Teresa was traveling by a train from Calcutta to Darjeeling. And during this trip, Jesus appeared to her and spoke to her in a series of visions. Now, this didn't come out until a few years ago when her letters came out, if you're familiar with that. And in these letters, it comes out that she had um, this very intense kind of vision experience of Christ. And in these visions, he called her to serve him radically in the poorest of poor, the sick, the dying, the street children of Calcutta. In a letter to her spiritual director, she put it this way, Jesus said to me, would you not help? And being overwhelmed by the fear of ridicule and loneliness and suffering and failure, she responded, how can I? And Jesus said back to her in this vision, will you refuse me? You've become my spouse for my love. There's a theology of celibacy in the Catholic Church where a person marries themselves to Christ and gives their sexuality to Christ. It's an incredible um, theology. You have become my spouse for my love. You have come to India for me. The thirst you had for souls brought you so far. Are you afraid now to take one more step for your spouse, for me, for souls? So you know the rest of the story? She said yes. She didn't refuse her spouse. Now that was September of 1946. And throughout the remainder of that year, 1946, and throughout 1947... In Mother Teresa's writings, her letters to her confessors and her spiritual director, we see that she had a rich and dynamic relationship with Christ. A very powerful and profound sense of his presence. And so she left her happy life as a nun at a convent, and she began the lonely work of a nun among the destitute and the dying on the streets of Calcutta. And her relationship with Christ changed. But not in the way you would suspect. In her words, for the next five decades, 50 years, she was overwhelmed by a sense of God's absence. For 49 years, from that moment until her death, for the rest of her life, she was ravaged by doubts, And spiritual loneliness, a sense of God's abandonment. In her letters to her confessors and her spiritual directors, which she asked them to burn, and they didn't. (laughs) We have them. She said that heaven seemed empty. Bitterest of all, her own suffering seemed to count for nothing to God. In one letter, she wrote of that terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not even existing. Strange, isn't it? I mean, following Christ led Mother Teresa into darkness. A five-decade-long darkness. A darkness that lasted her entire life and for nearly 50 years. Now, there were a few exceptions. After the death of Pope Pius the... I can't remember. She had a period of two or no, five weeks, she says in her letters, where her faith was kindled again. 
and she sensed the nearness of God. But other than just a few exceptions, she suffered this deep spiritual desolation. These are her words. Where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. How painful is this pain? I have no faith. Repulsed, empty, no faith, no love, no zeal. What do I labor for? If there be no God, there can be no soul. If there be no soul, then Jesus, you also are not true. How can this be? Let's turn our attention to the passage in Genesis and see if we can make sense of this kind of suffering. Genesis chapter 25. This passage that Aaron read to us. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to look there. Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old. And when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Now, don't miss what family this is. This is the family of Abraham. This is the family of blessing in the Bible. The whole Bible hinges around Genesis 12, when of all the people on the earth, God picks Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to do something that's going to set the world back to rights. This is that family. The family that through whom God would resolve the brokenness of the entire cosmos. This is the family that God has set on a pedestal. This is the family that God has put on a pinnacle and he said, this is my team. I'm running my plan through them. My plan to fix and renew and bless all things. This is the central family of the Bible. And what do we find out about them right off the bat? Verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he took his wife. Verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebekah's wife conceived. So that's how it works when you're in God's good graces. Problem, prayer, solution. Right? You're barren, you pray, and God opens the womb. Bam, two verses. 20, he gets married, he's 40. 21, she's barren. But by the end of the verse... She's already popping out babies. Look at verse 26. The last sentence. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth. So she wrestled with infertility for 20 years. That's a long time. Day in, day out, month by month, year by year. Have you ever known anybody that suffered from infertility? It, it shatters marriages. It crushes people. 20 years. Year one, year two, year three, year four, year five, 10, 16, 17. Relentlessly suffering. 18, 19 20 years. And this is the family. This is the central family. This is the family that God says, I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless everybody else. This is God's special 
family, the center, the pinnacle family of the Bible, why is something so soul-vexing as infertility sitting in their heart, barrenness for 20 years? How does this fit into God's plan to bless? And notice, this isn't just any garden variety hardship. Not only is this infertility with all of its weightiness and heaviness and sorrowful struggle. But in this situation, it's very much like Mother Teresa. Because there's a theological darkness at the heart of this. Like Mother Teresa, who following Christ, led her into darkness. God's promise to Abraham was that you will have children, and those children will have children, and through those children I will bless the world, and now barrenness. So it's not just the suffering, not that infertility is weak in any way, but it's compounded by the fact that there's a sense of God's abandonment. But you promised God. How is this going to work? Isaac and Rebecca, they are suffering at the hands of God. That's what's so... The soul wrenching about Mother Teresa's letters of all people. You've got to hear Isaac thinking, aren't we the family that God set aside for blessing? Aren't I Abraham's son? Hasn't God promised to bless me and my families and all the families of the earth through my children? So God answers their prayer. And when he does, when he finally turns his face toward them, He hurts them again. After waiting 20 years for God to answer their prayer, they finally get pregnant and war broke out in their womb. (laughs) God says to, to, to Rebecca, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you. They will be divided. And so Rebecca says, if this is it, if this is the answer, why me? Don't answer my prayers anymore. She's waited 20 years for God to open her womb. And when he does, he gives her war. What kind of God is that? How does this fit into God's plan to fix and renew and redeem all things through Isaac's family? Let's continue the story. Verse 24. These children she births. You got burly, manly Esau. Mama's boy. Jacob. Right? Right? Did you get the little character descriptions in the passage? Esau came out of the womb covered in hair and red and he was a strapping boy from the beginning. He's the kind of boy that so many dads want to raise. He grew up, he's a hunter, he's a man of the field, a man of the outdoors. He's the kind of boy you put a bumper sticker on the back of your car about, you know, and brag about all his accomplishments. He's out there doing manly stuff. Esau. And then there's Jacob. He likes mama and the tent. And the cookbooks. (laughs) And what does this lead to? Isaac, the father, like so many dads, loves the strapping strong boy. He's awesome. That's my boy. And Rebecca, she's taken with Jacob, her tender little lamb. And so the scriptures show us not only did they, one, wait 20 years... Through the wilderness of barrenness. And two, that when they did get pregnant, it was a terribly difficult pregnancy that grew into two boys who couldn't stand the sight of each other. But three, the fruit of all of this, 
is that favoritism ravaged their home. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. I mean, don't pass over that. Do you know what that does to a family? It means that Isaac, that Esau grew up with his father's affection, but not his mother's love. It means that Jacob grew up with his mother's tender love, but not his father's respect. Can you relate to any of these characters? You have a story. You were raised. God is, God's design for all of us is that our hearts would be nurtured under wise and generous and gracious love. But none of us have had it. And none of us give it. <laughs> I'm the father of five children and I can tell you. None of us give that kind of love. Our hearts were created to be nurtured in the tender, caring hands of strong and wise and persevering love. But none of us get that. And at the end of the day, we continually fail to give it. And then there's more. Look at verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau, daddy's favorite, came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Of what use is the complete and total wealth of Abraham that was given to Isaac that's promised to me? What use is that going to be to me? And what use is it to stand in the line of God's favor and blessing? Of what use is it when I'm hungry? Because I went hunting. So Jacob said, swear to me now. And Esau, in his amazing wisdom, swore to Jacob and sold his birthright on the spot. Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So there you have it. Here are your two options for the kind of family God uses. You've got dumb greed and clever greed. Which one is more acceptable to you when you rank the world? Foolish, got to have it now, shallow, dumb greed? Or calculating, mean, opportunistic greed? Shallow, got to have it now greed? Or I win, you lose greed? One lives for his stomach, the other for his stock portfolio. Which is better? One doesn't care at all about God's plan and his blessing for him and for his family and for the nations. He doesn't care. He'd rather have soup now than remember God's promises and tune his heart into God's big plan to make all things new. Just feed me now. The other sees God's promise as ground for self-promotion. Which is better. Isn't this story just an incredible mirror of you and me? How many times have I turned my back on the beauty and the glory and the intimacy of God for a passing pleasure, which after the fact, I I look back and it's kind of like a bowl of lentils and some moldy bread. How many times have I, as a minister of the gospel, relished some secondary kickback instead of the sheer privilege of just knowing God and making him known? I am so much like Esau and like Jacob. Just pick the day. 
Both are confessions of unbelief. So here you have it. The adult children of suffering, division, spiritual stupidity. Here they are. And it's you and me. And we're raising them. And then we get to verse, chapter 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land. <laughs> what do, you, do you laugh? I mean, <laughs> at some point in the face of just ultimate suffering. What, 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 and then there was a famine, you know. On, on top of all of this. Please, please, God, open her womb. Okay, 20 years later, war inside, favoritism, division, strife, spiritual death, famine, and then economic hardship. On top of all that internal and external chaos, economic ruin, devastation. And what family is this? This is the family. This is the family living under the curse of blessing. I will bless you. And through you, I will bless all nations. How does this work? I mean, what, what kind of calculus is at work here? This is some freaky equation that I, don't, I can't quite get the rhythm of. Now, does this reverse your expectations? Does this, does this kind of challenge your understanding of being a Christian? Does it challenge your view of how God works in the lives of those whom he loves? Because if it does, that doesn't bother God. In this passage, he reverses expectations like crazy. I mean, mean, back in chapter 25, verse 23, when God announces his future plan for the family of Abraham, he does it to, who is he telling it to? Chapter 25, verse 23, who is the God talking to? Anybody see in their Bible? It's Rebecca. Now, That's not how the God worked in the ancient world. He didn't start talking to families through the wife. He always spoke through the man. But God doesn't need our boxes. He really doesn't give a flip about our conventions. And then it gets even crazier. Because what God said to the woman there in verse 23, not to the man, was that the older son, the first son, is going to serve the younger son. So God took... The most predictable, hardened, absolute convention of the culture, which was the law of primogeniture. This this is the rights of the firstborn son. God took that and reversed it. In In this culture, the firstborn son got a double portion. If there were eight sons, the firstborn son got a double portion. The other seven had to scrap together for what was left. If there were two sons, the first son got it all and the second son got nothing. God takes this law, this cultural norm, and absolutely flips it on his head. So maybe you think hardship means God is against you. Maybe you think that you're too immature or you're too hard-headed or your family is just too jacked up. To be a part of God's plan to renew all things. 
But here's the description of Abraham's family in this passage. Struggling with infertility for 20 years. Struggling with division inside the family. Wounded by favoritism. Maybe you think that the best you can be because you don't know enough, because of all the moral catastrophes in your life, maybe you think the best you can do is play second string. You're not the kind of people through whom God would work. From Isaac and Rebecca to, to, to Mother Teresa, though, we see that's just not the calculus God uses. So what does this teach us about suffering at the hands of God? Why does God's family suffer? Well, first of all, we live in a broken world. There is infertility. That's a result of sin. Our bodies are broken. Sometimes the chromosomes don't line up right. And there are millions of babies born that are going to suffer of no fault of their own. It's a broken world. We live in between D-Day and V-Day. Christ has, con- has defeated sin and death and, and, and the devil and brokenness. But he has yet to establish that victory in, in an ultimate way over his creation. The ground is still broken. Famine still happens. We still live in a broken world. And none of us can escape it. And getting saved and being a Christian doesn't let you escape that. And then there's something we saw over the last two weeks. In the passage from 1 Corinthians. Dealing with sex in your body. As Christians, there's another kind of suffering. This is a different suffering than just... The suffering that you're, you get because you were dealt a human card. 1 Corinthians says that we are united to Christ's body. And so there is a suffering that Christians experience. And it is because we are mystically a part of the body of Christ. And so we are enduring His crucifixion and His death. And, and I don't fully understand that, but when ta- Paul talks about suffering, he talks about the fellowship of Christ and his suffering and filling up in my body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. There is, there is a suffering that, look, to believe in Jesus is to accept the way of suffering. Accepting the gospel is accepting a suffering into your life. And I don't fully understand that calculus either. Either. But somehow, sharing in Christ's suffering brings us into closer union with the suffering Christ. But there's a third reason that stands in bold relief in our passage this morning. When you read through Genesis 12 through 50, all the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his sons and Joseph, when you read through all of these stories, you see that to be in God's family is to experience the stern hand of God. I mean, this isn't the first story of infertility. If you've ever read Genesis 12 to 50, this is just par for the course. Like Abraham and Isaac, he has not only created us and chosen us, but he continues to work on us by bending us and kneading us and reducing us to rubble. This is what we see in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It's what we see when we look at Mother Teresa. 
St. Ignatius said there are few persons who realize what God would make of them if they abandoned themselves entirely into his hands and let themselves be formed by his grace. And this is one of my favorite images in all of Christian writings. Ignatius says, A thick and shapeless tree trunk would never believe it could become a statue as admired as a miracle of sculpture and would never submit itself to the chisel of the sculptor. Who, the sculptor, by his genius, can see what that tree can be. Many people do not understand, Ignatius says, that they could become saints if they would let themselves be formed by the stern hand of God. If they, if, if they did not ruin his plans by resisting the work he wants to do. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 8, talking about Jesus says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience. This is Jesus. He learned obedience. Through what he suffered. Now I I can't quite figure that out. It's hard for me to think that Jesus needed to learn. That's hard for me. It's hard for me to think that he needed to learn obedience. And it's hard for me to think that he needed to suffer in order to learn obedience. You see suffering in the hands of God is productive. It has the potential to bring out of us. The image of God. And and I'm not saying you should seek suffering. The suffering I'm talking about is something you will accept when you accept Christ. To believe the gospel is to believe and accept a suffering way of life. Last week after the sermon on suffering, John Hay sent me a song. The title of it is Holy Darkness. You know, not exactly. It's not been getting lots of radio airplay, you know. (laughs) And here's the course. Holy darkness, blessed night. Heaven's answer hidden from our sight. As we await you, O God of silence. We like God of victory, right? We like God of... As we await you, O God of silence, we embrace your holy night. We embrace this darkness. That's what we see Mother Teresa doing, embracing that dark. She's holding on to that darkness. Did you see the passion of the Christ? When Christ is carrying the cross, there's a moment where he's holding the cross. There's a mo- it's, you look at Mother Teresa's letters, she's holding this darkness into herself. At the end of the first verse of the song, it says, In the barren soil of your loneliness, there I will plant my seed. Which is an incredible image because that's what God did in Rebekah. He planted his seed. Do you know the word seed is used more in Genesis more frequently than any other book in the Bible? And where does God keep putting his seed and the seed of, of his chosen people in Genesis? In suffering and barrenness and infertility. The end of the second verse. My love can seem like a raging storm. <laughs> the last verse is my favorite. As the watchman waits for morning and the bride awaits her groom. So we, we wait to hear your footsteps as we rest beneath your moon. A friend of mine says he loves winter because when he looks at the trees denuded, you know, no leaves. He says, that's my soul. Stripped by God. Waiting in faith. If he doesn't come back, I will die. 
but believing that he will clothe me again. When you're suffering at the hand of God, when prayer and worship and scripture become an arid wasteland, when this has nothing for you, when God silences you by the echo of his silence, when all consolation and the love of God seems lost, in the desolate and dark night of the soul, God is in that absence purifying your soul. I read an article this week on the Lord's Prayer called the, the Lord, it said the Lord's Prayer as a discipline for our desires. The dark night of the soul is God purifying our desires, shaping us. It's the tree and the chisel. But who wants the chisel to be God's silence, right? I want the chisel to be wealth. Let me learn how to follow you with wealth, God. Or I want the chisel... But the chisel of silence. Reading Mother Teresa's letters, we see that she learned to deal with her trial of faith by converting her feeling of abandonment by God into an act of abandonment to God. She came to believe this was her Gethsemane. This was her Gethsemane. It was her participation in the thirst Jesus suffered on the cross. She came to believe that when Jesus cried out, I thirst, that she was given the gift of that moment for 49 years. I thirst for you, God. This is Paul's prayer. I want to know Christ. I want to know the, 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 the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. But who wants that suffering? So when you drink the cup of this suffering, and I am not talking about, not, last week I was talking about suffering in general. This week I am not talking about suffering that is common to the human race. I am talking about when you go through, and not everyone does, the dark night of the soul. When you are abandoned by God. I'm talking about that suffering. When that happens to you, let me encourage you to remember the verse I quoted last week. Better the wounds of a friend than the kisses of an enemy. And pair it up with what Jesus said. No greater love is this than anyone that he would lay down his life for his friend. In other words, the friend is Christ. And better his wounding you than the kisses of an enemy. When you're in the dark night of the soul, remember that. And when you drink this cup of suffering, let me encourage you to remember the story of Rebecca's barrenness. Because this birth through a barren woman is a really good hint at the way God works. Because this miraculous birth, God miraculously giving a son that he had promised through a barren womb, this fits in, if you read the Bible, with a long list of miraculous births in the Bible. And all those miraculous births in the Bible culminate in the miraculous birth of God's own son being born of a virgin. And he lives a perfect and a pure life. And what does he do? Get this. Remember the story of Jacob and Jacob grabbing the heel of Esau and grabbing the birthright? What does Jesus do? He refused to greedily grasp All the rights and privileges that were his as the firstborn son. And in a great reversal, God's son becomes barren on a cross. 
And his barrenness was to take your sin and my sin and your guilt and my guilt and out of that face the darkness of God's abandonment, right? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And in that barrenness, when God put on him your sin and my sin, and he hung on the cross like a barren, wicked, disobedient son. Why? So that all the rights and privileges of a good and obedient firstborn son would fall to you and me. God made great promises to Abraham and to his children forever. And if you and I just believe in Jesus Christ, those promises will belong to us and to our children forever. God made good on the oath he swore by sending his own son for you and me. So you and I can sing the song that Jesse and, 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 and Ernie and the led us in, Come ye sinners. Poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. We sang it. Come ye weary and heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. Jesus ready, stands to save you, full of pity. He's moved with compassion, full of love. He has turned his face towards you in power. He can do it. He can save you. And even though Jacob's family... And Isaac's family, even though all of that stuff is true of me. And the more I get to know you, we're as jacked up as the patriarchs. We're, we're, that, we're as bad of parents as they are. And we're as bad of children as they are. And we're greedy and we violate one another. And he will embrace me. Me. Broken, pitiful me. He will embrace me, lost and ruined by the fall. He will embrace me and he will embrace my family. As bad as I mess my family up to be. Do you believe that? Jesus, the embodiment of the Father's love, conquering the power of sin and guilt and condemnation against you. It's done. It's erased forever. And Jesus does embrace you in his arms. And so does the Father. And so does the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus paid for your sin. There is no other hope. There is no other place to flee. Except into the open arms of our dear Savior.